0: Welcome to the Teaching Ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message: You will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fBCevansville.com.: What do you think about I don't have my notes and for me what do you think about this category of, like personal change? Can people change? Do people change? Yeah, how does that happen? Maybe. They have to want to change, she says. Maybe. God can make us want to change, that's true. How else? How do people change? Anything. People. Just Humanity. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. There we go. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. How do thieves stop being thieves? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> He's got the great Sunday school answer, right? Jesus is the answer, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. In Ephesians 4, this is what it says, right? How do you, how do you have uh, thieves that are not believers that stop stealing? Was that the power of the Holy Spirit? What is that? Put them in jail. They stop stealing, they don't stop becoming thieves, right? You can be like or you can be outside of those two ways. <laughs> yeah. You know, there are, we love to hear these stories. You're exactly right. There's morally, we can, we are are, um, born as moral beings, right? We read this in Romans 1 that uh, we have a, um, within ourselves, we have our own law that we set for ourselves. It also tells us that we break our own law, uh, so we can't even keep the law that we set for ourselves. And Anybody that's tried to lose weight knows that uh, exactly, right? Or uh, trying to learn, a, learn something, a new hobby, and you, you set a goal, and you don't achieve the goal, and it's, it's because I didn't do what I w- needed to do or wanted to do, or whatever that may be. But, but we, we are moral beings, but being moral beings, m- moral people, does not mean that we have the ability to... Um, please God, apart from the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, right? What do you think about when you think of the word conversion? Change. New life. That's a good one, yeah. What else? Throw out like two more for me. A change in purpose. That's a good one. Repentance, yeah. Many people today are um, are skeptical that people can truly change. You know, they think that a leopard can't change its spots, or you'll hear "once a cheater, always a cheater," um, or it may not. It may be something less bad like that, and uh, more about they'll they'll talk about how we need to accept who we are. That's who I am, and I need to uh, learn to accept these internal circumstances that I have um, and adapt to them rather than fundamentally change them. And culture puts such a heavy um, force on us, because we live in the culture, that as believers, we often will believe this idea that well, this is just the way I am. It's my personality. Um, It's just the way I think. And so I just got to deal with it. And that's, that's the way it is. You know, culture even takes things that we would say are not good and they celebrate them rather than recognizing the inherent dangers or wrongness in them. You know, they'll say, well, this is just my lot or this is how I was born. Accept me as I am. Because I've already accepted what and dealt with it, right? So we say, well, people don't or can't change, so we just face the truth and we just resign ourselves to it. In Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, Mark Dever says any suggestion that you can change deeply is regarded with serious suspicion. And any su- such suggestion is taken to be a potentially sinister tool of manipulation. In the hands of those who would coerce you into conformity to their standards, cultivating in you self-hatred and a loathing of some characteristic of yourself, whether it be your sexual desires or your vocational ambitions or your ethical standards or your religious beliefs. And we are who we are, so they say, and rather question these innate desires. We should be proud of it. And what we see today is like even promote it, Um, but for all this uncertainty and suspicion about the possibility of change, people really do have a longing for change. You know the the thing, um, the statement from Hamlet, probably the famous, most famous line there: "To be or not to be." He talks about the restlessness of the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And if the truth were known, a dissatisfaction with ourselves that is as widespread as it is deep-seated. We are not content. So we rearrange furniture, we paint a hallway, we buy new clothes, and then things just get worse and we wonder about the changing where we live. Maybe we need to move. We ask for flexible hours at our job. We quit our job. We change careers. We um, long for changing our spouse at times. Today, even those more traditionally fixed boundaries of gender and sexuality and life itself, they are transgressed in a vain attempt to find satisfaction. And yet, as work conditions and jobs become more subject uh, to our own choices, gender, death, marriages, All of that, you even see state after state uh, begins to legalize medical murder. We seem to find ourselves defeated and trapped, hopeless. So you wonder, are the cynics right? Is change really impossible or is it possible? And I talk about this with you all because I would say probably most of us in this room are believers So most of us here as believers recognize that change is possible. Change at a level that we have no ability to do ourselves. And yet when life gets hard, sometimes we struggle with, can life change? God can change me and give me a new heart, but can he really help me in my relationships? God can take me out of the muck and mire. He can can create me a new person. And yet I hate my job and it'll never get better. God can't do anything about that. We go through these things and so I, I will wonder sometimes if I'm really honest with you all, can people really change? Like I recognize change for salvation. I really do believe that I see that that happens. But I, I see people um, that just get stuck time and time again in these, in these deep sins or these deep problems. And I wonder, can they change completely? I'll give you an example. So my, my company uh, this past week or two weeks ago, however long that was, had a, uh, a leadership conference. And so during COVID, you know, so COVID, the, during the lockdown and everything, people are not in working like they normally are. People were, All that stuff that was going on, right? In that time, my company got hacked uh, by one of the, um, um, what do you call that? The ransomware hacks. So uh, ransomware, so we lost all this information and costs us a lot of money. So when we go to these leadership conferences now, these are usually times where we look at how we uh, can manage the people better. How do we uh, protect the company? And so there's always somebody there to talk about cybersecurity. The guy that came and spoke to us was the the guy that started uh, the dark web. He started the one of the port the first portals to the dark web, so the dark web is where all the bad guys do all the bad things on the internet they it's how they steal your identity and sell it your credit card information so anyway, this guy did all of that, and he's sitting here talking about uh how he was raised in a home where his mom had trained him to to be a thief to steal from a young age um, so she would uh, encourage him and teach him and train him how to go into these um, stores and things and steal. Um, and she lived a terrible life as well. And so he, that's what he grew up in. He grows up, becomes an adult, and he's doing that as well. He goes to jail for uh, doing all those illegal things. Well, now he comes and he's an ethical hacker. And he's talking about being married and the, how his life has changed. I'm just sitting there thinking, he's not a believer. It was, it was pretty evident, this guy's not a believer. So, yeah, the, I, I recognize that the, at the deepest level of what he needs, he's not changed there. But it just makes me wonder, is he still really an ethical hacker? Where, how does he deal with temptation to do the things he used to do? Um, what does he do about that, you know? Um, I, I wonder, like can his wife really trust him? Because I was having a hard time trusting him. It's really true. But I'm not talking about change like that. Like We've already discussed that. I'm not talking about uh, you you do bad things and now we're going to stop doing bad things. Uh, Not necessarily. Because today we're talking about what the Bible says about deep, real, meaningful change. The type of change that isn't just possible, but that is expected and happens to all believers. We're talking about that great change that takes place in conversion. Dictionary.com says that conversion is literally a turning. It's from scripture we see it. It's a turning from sinning to repenting of our sins and turning uh, from trusting in ourselves to a trusting in Christ to reconcile us to God. We see in Acts 20, 18 through 21 that you can't read. We see Paul's summary of his preaching and he says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, he's talking about the gospel, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Mark Dever says, if we think conversion is something that we alone do, then we will evangelize one way. If we think that conversion is something that most fundamentally God does, then we will evangelize another way. And how we evangelize will determine in no small part Our church's health, as surely as what food you're buying at the store, affects your physical body's fitness. Anemic evangelism will starve us, and we will waste away. Careless evangelism will stuff us with false converts, and our church will become sick and unsound and dysfunctional. Perhaps it'll even die. But a biblical understanding of conversion will encourage us to a biblical practice of evangelism. A biblical understanding of conversion and of evangelism is a mark of a healthy church. And understanding these matters biblically will free us to tell all we can of the good news of Jesus Christ. As we seek to show people our lives and persuade them with our words what it means to be changed by God. God has always promised that his word works. We see it where God says to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55.11, that his word shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. A lot of what Passes as religion today is really just an affirmation of ourselves. It's this view that we must accept everyone as they are because that is what Jesus would do. That's what people say. This leads to the self satisfaction that just chooses our human condition rather than our biblical condition. And people will push against the idea of change. While on one hand, Folks want change. They want to be healthy. They want to be a better parent, a best friend, a good golfer, a fast runner. They want to be consistent. They don't want anxiety. They don't want fear. They want to be bold. They want to enjoy people. But when it's suggested that they need to make real change for those things to happen, then there is a resistance to that. You know, people... you. Tell them that change needs to happen, and they may tell you um, that you have no right to tell them that they need to change. Wait, you don't, you don't really truly know me, so you can't tell me that. They say they're just fine. They don't want us to impose our ideas on others, sug- suggesting that our way of living and our way of looking at this world is better is a real turnoff to them. And then we're looked at as hypocrites. We know that the Bible teaches that change is needed and that we're not just fine. In fact, the Bible teaches that we're in real trouble. John three nineteen through 20 says, the lights come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Paul told the Ephesian Christians that before they were converted, they were dead in their sins and transgressions. So much of the gospel presentation is written in God's word by Paul in the New Testament. And he says, God says, that all humanity is spiritually dead before they're saved. Romans 2 and 3 was written to show That conversion is absolutely necessary. The Bible speaks in profound and drastic images to show us our human nature. The Bible says we are in debt. We are enslaved. We are bankrupt. We're dead. This is our condition, and it is an utter disaster. It's obvious that a change must take place, and this is a change that only Jesus can bring. When Jesus gently and graciously employs his scalpel in our hearts, and he begins to draw us to himself, we experience a great conviction over what we previously believed to be right and good. We realize the seriousness and the all-encompassing aspect of sin, and it. Brings us to a place where we see sin, the sin that we've been committing, for what it truly is. When we are truly convicted of sin, when we were for those believers and we saw it, it wasn't just a, ooh, I shouldn't have done that, or, man, this is bothering me on the inside. My conscience is pricked. No, it was that we saw the ugliness of sin. We saw that we haven't believed in God. We haven't trusted God. We haven't looked at the world the way God looks at the world. We haven't cared about the things God cares about. When we're converted, we are like David. Um, After he committed adultery, he wrote in Psalm 51.4 against you, You only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, this is a crucial part of the good news. You don't just need to discover your true self and your potential. You must be converted. You need to be converted. You need to turn to repentance and faith. You don't need a better you. You need a new you. Paul Alexander says that patience is this pastoral virtue. But the one thing we don't want to be slow about is preaching the gospel. It can be easy to assume a rudimentary, rudimentary understanding of the gospel and the Christian life among the local church. I actually was talking to Colin last night at the uh, church family event that we had that um, I struggled a little bit with this lesson because there's the assumption that if I'm going to talk about conversion and evangelism that most everybody here recognize that and knows that. So what, what can I say new? Well, There's nothing new to be said. Uh, What's something different I can say? Well, it's not really different. The, the gospel is the gospel. Conversion happens. And we need to be reminded of that If we assume on our part when we're talking to the church about a rudimentary understanding of the gospel, that can lead to presumption on your part. We, when we assume the gospel instead of clarifying it, people who profess Christianity but don't understand or obey the gospel are cordially allowed to presume their own conversion without examining themselves for evidence of it which may amount to nothing more than a blissful damnation. Our ministries are ultimately about what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, ensuring salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Believing the true gospel and responding to it in repentance and belief is the only way to be saved. The gospel and its required response, therefore, are the very last things we want to assume that people know, even if some of them insist otherwise. We know that the human heart is astoundingly deceptive. Something that we see in America now, nominalism. That's being a Christian in name only. That's spread in our churches like gangrene and what happens is these misunderstandings about the gospel, they are everywhere, even among these professional evangelicals. Professional, and what I mean by that is that they're the big names that we see, or professing evangelicals, those that say they're a Christian, and it's just spreading. Um, It's especially true regarding the relationship with other religions and its implications in our everyday lives. You know, we, we, we talk with other religions and say, oh, we're, we're pretty close. People need to hear the gospel whether they're professing Christians or not. Paul Alexander, I like this statement. He says, what you win them with is likely what you will win them to. So if you win them with the gospel, you win them to the gospel. If you win them with technique or programs, entertainment, your own personal charisma, you might end up winning them to yourself and your methods, and you might not, but it's likely they won't be won to the gospel first and foremost. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. The implication is that once you try to turn the corner from technique, program, or entertainment, if that's what your basis is on, and you try and turn the corner to the gospel, it's likely that you'll either lose them or they're gonna be converted to you and your method, not Christ. The gospel of Christ has never needed the gimmicks of man to affect conversion in the soul. If we're going to build a new church building here, if, the, if we're building a new building here, we start with the foundation, right? You got to start at the bottom. You got to have a good foundation. That's the groundwork. That's the starting point. That's why it's called groundwork. You work in the ground. And the condition of that foundation will play a part in the condition of the rest of the building, If it's built on shaky or weak footings, then that building's not going to stand for very long. If the foundation is missing pieces or it's incomplete, that building's going to tumble. So if we're thinking about what makes a healthy church, we want to build a healthy church, not the building, but like we talked about the local gathering of believers, then some of the most critical groundwork happens in our evangelism. It's both in what we say and how we say it. We're saying something about how we understand not only the gospel, but its implications for our lives and your life. So if you're looking at it from the ground up, the way we understand the gospel will inform the way that we do evangelism. The way we do evangelism will inform the way our hearers understand the gospel. The way our hearers understand the gospel will inform the way they live out the gospel. And the way our hearers live out the gospel will have a direct bearing on the corporate witness of our churches in our communities. The corporate witness of our churches will in turn make our evangelism either easier or harder, depending on whether that witness is a help or a hindrance. The most important aspect of evangelism is the gospel, the good news. If we're not getting the gospel right according to the word, then whatever we're doing can't be called evangelism. So let's talk about what the essentials of evangelism are. And we can sum them up in four words. God, man, Christ, response. There we go. You can think of it like this. God is our holy creator and righteous judge. He created us to glorify him and enjoy him forever. But mankind has rebelled against God by sinning against his holy character and law. We've all participated in this sinful rebellion, both in Adam as our representative head and in our own individual actions. So as a result, we have alienated ourselves from God and have exposed ourselves to his righteous wrath, which will banish us eternally to hell if we are not forgiven. But God sent Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, To die the death that we deserve for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that God might both punish our sin in Christ and forgive it in us. The only saving response to this good news is repentance and belief. We must repent of our sins, turn from them to something which is to God and believe in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation to God. God, man, Christ, response. So what is evangelism? Evangelism is not an imposition of our beliefs on others. You know, a common objection in our culture today to the gospel is the idea that sharing the gospel is imposing our beliefs on people. You must believe this because I believe it. It's like I'm imposing it on them. And it can be done that way, right? And that can be a turnoff. Lots of people don't like to be told what to think and what to do. But when we understand what the Bible teaches about evangelism, then it isn't about imposing our beliefs We have to understand that the things that we believe in as Christians are fact. They aren't just beliefs or just someone's opinions or things that we think might be a good idea. They are fact, the truth. And these facts are not our facts. We didn't come up with them and make them facts. When we are presenting the facts of the Christian gospel, we are presenting what is found in God's word, and that comes from God. We really can't actually impose it on anyone. Evangelizing is telling the good news. This doesn't include making sure that the person that you're sharing with responds to it correctly. I wish we could make people respond to the gospel positively, but we can't. We because we see that the results from evangelism come from God, not us. First Corinthians 3 5 through 7 says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each, I planted. Apollos watered, but God gave the growth, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Number two, evangelism is not simply a personal testimony. It isn't just your personal testimony. For sure, your personal testimony can be an important tool you use when sharing the gospel with someone you talking with someone and building a, building a bridge, creating a connection there, helping to, them to see that you understand where they're coming from and what they struggle with. Sharing your testimony for sure can be a help, but it can't stop just at your experience. You have to move from what God has done in your life and get to the gospel itself. People have to understand what the gospel is and respond to it just like you did when you were saved. Evangelism has to move to the objective, indisputable, necessarily confrontational facts of the gospel. Number three, evangelism is not the same thing as social action or political involvement. Today we have problems with people on this horizontal level. Conflict issues. And that can confuse the fundamental problem which is between us and God, the vertical aspect of it. We can be confused by this and miss this. Some churches or organizations or people will talk about redeeming our communities. But Evangelism in itself is not about redeeming society. Evangelism is about redeeming sinners. And society is changed when individual men and women who have been changed by the gospel through churches display God's good character in the interactions with whom they, he has saved. Evangelism is not simply encouraging positive thinking. Norman Vincent Peale was the originator of the power of positive thinking. I was in New York City one time, and I'm walking down the street, and there's a a church, because in in Manhattan, there's a number of churches there. There's actually the church where George Washington prayed after um, uh, he became president, or right before he became president. Um, But there's this church, and there's this statue out in front of it, and I look, and it's Norman Vincent Peale, um, which we had a former president that used to attend that church. But anyway, if we think good, positive thoughts, this is what he was thinking. If you think good, positive thoughts, then our life will change, and it'll change for the good. But evangelism is being faced with the hard things like not positive thoughts. My sin, what I have done, separates me from a holy God. There's not a lot of positive in that. In that type of thinking. But being saved, we will uh, have to take up our cross, follow Christ. That doesn't seem real positive either. I don't really want to do that, right? Work hard and, and struggle and face persecution. So there are positive thoughts, right? You can be saved. You don't have to go uh, spend eternity apart from God. You don't have to uh, have eternal damnation. You can be in glory Worshiping God. That, That can be a positive thinking, but it's not just positive thinking. It's not simply encouraging positive thinking. Evangelism is not the same as apologetics. Now, apologetics, that's the process of answering questions and objections folks will have to the Christian faith. Apologetics is excellent. It's wonderful. It can be a tool that can be used in evangelism. It can be a help. It can be an encouragement. But... If we're just defending the faith without sharing the gospel, then we're not evangelizing, right? We can talk about and defend the inerrancy of Scripture and not talk about the gospel. We can talk about why bad things happen in this world and not share the gospel in that. And that would be apologetics. How do we do that? I can, I can defend all kinds of things from Scripture and, and not share the gospel. Evangelism isn't defending the faith. It's telling the way to faith. It's telling people the good news. Evangelism is not to be confused with the results of evangelism. If we combine this misunderstanding, thinking evangelism is the fruit of evangelism, within unbiblical understanding of the gospel and conversion, then it's very possible to end up thinking not only that evangelism is simply seeing others converted, but also thinking that it is within your own power to convert others. And this can lead you to become manipulative. If I I think and I'm confused that evangelism means that when I'm sharing the faith, people will come to faith by my sharing the faith all the time i can lead me to become manipulative so then how should we evangelize well first of all we should pray we should pray because salvation is a work of god now god has chosen to share the gospel through his people that he has saved saved people sharing the gospel, but we depend on him completely to see sinners converted. So before we go out and share our faith, share the good news, we should be praying. Second, we should tell people with honesty that if they repent and believe, they will be saved, because honesty means it it will be costly, You might lose things. You might lose what you hold so dearly. It's much better what you'll gain. What you gain is far better than what you'll lose, but it might cost you. It will cost you. Sorry, it will cost you. We should tell people with urgency that if you repent and believe they will be saved, they need to decide You don't have forever. Decide. We should encourage. We should continue to share. Fourth, we can tell people with joy that if they repent and believe the good news that they will be saved. Oh, what a a great thing to be saved from the pit of hell. Number five, We should use the Bible. Use God's Word. If that's the foundation for what we believe, if that's the foundation for how we know what the good news is, then we need to use it. People will come up with all kinds of things arguments, questions, issues. We need to go to the truth, we need to use God's Word. We need to realize that the lives of individual Christians and of the church as a whole are central to evangelism. So as a church, a healthy church, it isn't just the individual people or just a handful of people that are good at evangelism. There are people that are gifted at this, it's true, Um, but as a whole as our church, um. This is central to evangelism on how it gets out, how people recognize it, see it, are drawn to the, that good news. You've got to build relationships with non-Christians. How are you going to share the gospel with non-believe unbelievers if you don't, aren't around unbelievers? You've got to have some kind of a relationship. You've got to be, be around them in some way, um, find opportunities for that. And then lastly, work together with other Christians to take the gospel to those who don't live around any Christians. This is a little bit build off of uh, number seven. And it actually leads into another one of the marks that we're going to talk about, missions. Um, but this is a way that we can encourage one another um, to be involved with unbelievers. It's also the way to encourage those who live uh, overseas who are out there uh, sharing the good news in other countries and other places, um, in darker places, that we can take part in that and to help.